papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk, full of press, full of press. Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis on what's going on in the news media. And we're very happy to have you with us as we have some experienced journalists guiding us through these conversations. I'm not supposed to say veteran journalists, Thank right? Thank you. <laughs> but thank you for your service anyway. I'm Rex Smith, formerly editor of the Times Union. Judith Patrick is here, who is vice president of New York Press Association, formerly editor of the Daily Gazette in Schenectady. Many years in that. There you go. Ira Fussfeld, many years in everything, right? I will see your many years and raise you many more years. <laughs> Ira was the editor and became the publisher of the Daily Freeman in Kingston and its affiliated publications, now retired from that role. And the ever-active Ian Pickus, news director of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. One day at a time. <laughs> there we go. It's, well, you know, that is exactly right. The great days in journalism are the days when there's a lot of news. Like, you had a big election night just recently, which is always fun, right? That's true. I came up in the sports section, and the sports folks were always giving it to the news folks for being so dramatic about election night, because in sports, every night's election night. Oh. They go to overtime at 11 p.m. You still have to get the story in. There really is nothing like election night in the newsroom, even though you work around the clock, you're groggy the next day, you're waiting on results, the Board of Elections won't post anything, and it's 12.30 in the morning, there's still something that just fires you up about it, and kind of having something pressing to do during the election on an election night, even on an off year, quote-unquote, like this year was, just a great night, and we were on WAMC spread out all across the Northeast in different cities, and we had a great mix of our on-air special coverage and then the website, uh, WAMC.org. And by the time we got in the day after, we were pretty much caught up, which is a good feeling. <laughs> you know, one of the things about Election Day, and the day itself is kind of slow. Yeah. There's nothing to do all day. And then at 9 o'clock, 9.30, when they, after the polls close, then you really ratchet up the coverage. One of the things I noticed this year is because so many newspapers have changed their printing, the next day's paper did not include election results. Right. They had to refer people to their website. So that was a dramatic change from my perspective. You knew that they weren't up late putting a paper together. They were up late updating their website, but it was a whole different ball of wax for newspaper traditional print readers. Underscores the limited value of the print publication, doesn't it? Well, uh, yeah, I think it's been more recent than just this year where that problem that you describe happened. And I'd so looked forward to the paper the day after Election Day because there was so much information in it. And now all of that information is a day later than that. And it's just another example of the weakness of print products now. And the strength of digital and radio broadcasting. I mean, because you can really appreciate the immediacy of it because on election night you want to know who won your town council position and that goes to show where we need to be and the fact that the next day's paper the print product 
could do greater analysis and give you more than just who won what race. The paper itself can tell you why this matters, and let's hope that that's what's happening. The hard part is that there are so many communities now that get almost no coverage because there are fewer journalists than there used to be. It used to be that you could give some depth into why Moreau in Saratoga County went to a Democratic supervisor. You would wonder, well, who knows at this point? And who can really effectively trace the ins and outs of the dynamics in Saratoga Springs where there was significant infighting in the party that led to now a Republican mayor? I guess some of that you do get, but it's hard to get the inside story when there are just so few folks actually in the field. And we actually had a conversation about framing it because sometimes you have to recognize the bubble you're in as people who live and breathe this stuff every day and are going to follow these new elected bodies and mayors. And we were writing a lead on something and it said, you know, several local races drew voters to the polls on Tuesday. And I said, I think we have to redo that because that's actually the opposite of what happened. Most voters didn't turn out uh, as excited <laughs> as we all were about these local races. You know, and that's I, a big part of it. I appreciate the hesitation on analysis sometimes. I heard actually Domenico Montanero of NPR News, the political editor of NPR, wisely refuse an anchor's request to leap to a conclusion. The question was, what do the election results here in this off year say about the presidential race in 2024? He said about as much as polls a year out say, which is not much. And I appreciate the fact that he didn't rise. Well, this is a really troubling for the Republican Party, which would have been an easy analysis to make and what some people did. But that was thoughtful. And so we don't do much of it. <laughs> <laughs> thoughtful is hard. You know, it's much easier to just parrot the easy stuff. And uh, there's enough of that going on. You know, you know the other reason that people look forward to election night in the business was pizza. That's true. <laughs> people who were not assigned to be working that night would come in for the pizza. Yeah. Do you understand that, listeners? There is newsrooms tend to buy pizza for the staff that's working really hard and staying through the night. Well, basically to keep people staying hard and working. Uh, it made <laughs> less sense to me because when we, speaking of my newspaper, when we shifted from an afternoon publication to a morning publication, people would be working nights regularly where they had not been working nights regularly. So why would we have to reward them for pizza with pizza on election night when those were the hours you'd be working anyway? Tradition. But, but that's what a publisher thinks about when he looks when he looks at the balance sheet. Yeah, those pizzas were going to break yeah. the uh, budget yeah. of uh, the Daily Freeman. Yeah. You'll be surprised to know that it never broke the budget, but it was questioned at budget meetings. Oh, I worked for the company you uh, worked for. Uh, I know exactly where, you know, $100 here and there would we, sometimes we, draw the we attention. We would have two days of eight-hour each budget meetings and started dawn and end in the darkness. And uh, we were fed well, but we were asked everything about pizza and toilet paper and you name it. Oh, outrageous. Those anyway. the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The tough days in journalism were not just recently, folks. Uh, I was just reading the comments of one media leader saying, well, we're obviously in a transitional phase in journalism. And I'm thinking, when have we not yeah. been? The good old days were tough. Speaking of journalists doing their job, George Stephanopoulos, hosting this week on ABC News, was interviewing Steve Scalise, the majority leader in the U.S. House of Representatives, and asked him what should have been a simple question to state that the 2020 election was not, in fact, stolen by Joe Biden. Scalise refused to say that. So George Stephanopoulos asked the same question no fewer than a half dozen times, he kept asking it. And that goes to something, you, Ian, you mentioned a couple of weeks ago on this show, which is the difficulty of asking tough questions 
of people who you need to talk to again to get them to come back and speak to you, but sometimes you just have to do it. In this case, Scalise would not do it. He says, I ask you a very, very simple question, and I've asked, I think, the fifth time, and you can't appear to answer. And he never did give an answer. And that non-answer is extremely telling. Here's a local example, and this was ex post facto, but still relevant to what we're talking about. In the closing days of the Schenectady mayoral election, the local Republicans got everybody together to try to push the candidate over the finish line, which didn't end up happening. But one of those boosters was Lee Zeldin, the 2022 gubernatorial candidate for the Republicans, who was a member of the House and voted not to certify the victory by Joe Biden in the 2020 election. So in our coverage of that get out the vote rally on Friday, where Zeldin was into a microphone exhorting people to vote, we did note that he had voted to decertify the results of 2020. And I think maybe more of that is helpful. Absolutely. To put stuff in context, to hold people to account for the votes that they have cast when they might be hoping that you would forget about that kind of thing. Exactly. So you're George Stephanopoulos and you've just grilled Scalise asking the same question that was not answered. Do you have him back on down the road? Let's presume he wants to come back on. He might not if he felt he was going to be grilled like that. Should you reward him by having him back on? Good and giving, question. Giving him the exposure that ABC but would give. But you kind of have to, don't you? He's the majority leader of the House. That's why you have to hold him to account by asking the question, because you have to bring him in. But if he doesn't answer the question, where do you end well, up? I, I don't know. I mean, what's the guess? He's the majority leader. But if he's not going to answer your questions or not going to be forthcoming, screw him. Let's you know, but I've, I've never known any politician to actually really answer the question. <laughs> well, but this is such a basic question. The yes or no is the answer. I think Republicans view that as a gotcha question. And I think they are skilled at avoiding it because they don't want to be on tape in Democratic campaign ads saying that they did not believe the election was stolen. I I do believe that as wrong as it is, this question is serious enough that it should be answered. But if you listen to any press conference of any politician, they are never answering the questions. It's, It's so frustrating for reporters because they have to ask the question four or five times. And sometimes the audience or the people watching at home are annoyed with the reporters because they're saying, well, they answered the question. Well, they did not answer the question. And it's a common problem, and it happens all the time. Again, I I do believe whether or not the election was stolen is a crucial question. It's one that is not a gotcha question, but politicians are skilled at evading answers. And Ira's talking about a dynamic that really existed, especially in the Trump years, where— And we got a lot of pushback from our audience saying, you know, don't have these people on. Don't cover Trump. Nothing he says is true. And obviously the counter argument to that is I don't know that the radio station is making the difference in the fact that he is the duly elected president for this set amount of time. And the things he says and does are worth covering. You know, and we never got to a great conclusion on how to handle that, I don't think. We still don't, right? Now as a candidate, and you see the varying responses when he goes on, because he lies as he breathes, I'm sorry, but the man is just a font of misinformation. So if this has got to be asked of a broadcaster, not of a print person, but if you had the opportunity, and if Trump was campaigning in New York, which he won't, obviously, but if he was and he offered to come in here for an interview, would you do a live interview or would you insist that it's a tape interview? And if you do a tape interview and it's edited, you run the risk of Trump or his people saying, well, he made, they made me look bad. I think you run that risk no matter what happens. And I know Steve Inskeep was trying to get President Trump on NPR for, I don't know, five or six years, finally did. 
Uh, they taped it for that very reason, and he hung up on them anyway. <laughs> if it were me, I would lose a lot of sleep, and I'd give it the college try, I think. I, I think I would go for it. Why not? You know, I've never interviewed a president before. You know, yeah. it's a hard thing in the debates, too. You know, I think people felt that the NBC anchored debate was the best of the three Republican debates that we've had. The criticism of NBC being that they partnered with not only Salem Radio, but Rumble, which is a digital site that has advanced outrageous anti-Semitism and ultranationalism. But if you're asking debate questions of five candidates for president and they're not answering your questions, that's also a tough situation. And what was the first answer that Vivek Ramaswamy gave? They asked him a question and he turned that around and started complaining about NBC. <laughs> right. Lovely. Great to have you here, Vivek. You know, and I wonder if voters see that and appreciate it and understand what's going on, that trying to put the media on trial is just simply a way of stepping away from the responsibility of answering questions yourself. I think we have to step up more and say right out front, you're not answering my question. This is my question. I think we need to be far more aggressive or assertive and not be so plagued because we tend to be deferential to politicians or people in power. And I think it's time for us to step forth and, and say, we know what we're talking about and you're wrong and you need to answer this question. There was a sports angle to this. I hate to bring up sports, but you guys did for several weeks when I wasn't here. So, <laughs> Sorry, you, so you owe me one. The, the general manager of the Yankees had a press gaggle the other day, and he used four-letter words, and he was, he was very assertive in talking to the reporters. And one of them was the baseball columnist for the New York Post, Joel Sherman. And Sherman was interviewed by others later, and they were asking him about what he thought about this cursing and the, the back and forth. And he said, honestly, this is the way we do it all the time. It wasn't very unique for us to get into that kind of discussion. What was the difference? The difference was the, it was videotaped. So the public got to see this back and forth, and it got a little testy, but it was pretty much for the newspaper guy, business as usual. So when you see it, when you actually see it, or if you see it on TV in a debate, if the reporter presses the subject, many in the public say, "Why well, he's being nasty. But that's pretty much what you're supposed to be doing is pressing the subject. But as a result, the, the media is viewed unfavorably in many corners. Because you mean the questions are so the, blunt. The and, questions are, I mean, if, yeah, you, if you were hard. to talk to Mario Cuomo off the record, yeah. your discussion with him might be a lot worse than if you and Mario Cuomo were debating at a press conference where it was out in the public. But you would be used to the give and take that could turn negatively because you've done it that way off the record. with right. But the general public does not see or hear the off the record conversation, which is often more strident, more combative than what they see or listen to on the radio. By the way, shouldn't we be pushing the Federal Communications Commission to ease up on the seven bad words uh, notion? I mean, only broadcast is restrained from airing language that now we see online all the time. It seems to me that that's an artificial clutching of pearls by the Federal Communications Commission to say that if you're over the air, you can't air certain language that is otherwise available to electronic media consumers. I would think that it's an antiquated notion, but people's sensibilities are hard to predict. I agree with you, Rex, because I think the radio stations can use their own editorial judgment about what goes on the air and what goes over their airways. They have a button that they can press to take <laughs> a word out if they do not believe the public needs to hear it. But there are times when maybe that expletive needs to go out there so people understand it. I mean, in the newspaper business, we didn't have specific rules about specific words. Well, maybe we did a couple of words. 
but we well, used. But you, a, you would never have let the S word, much less the F word, get by. It, both of which. You know what? There the was York. a local band whose name had the F word in it, and we had a, had to have a huge debate about whether or not we even promote the band because well, it had this word in it. And we had a Times Union reporter who published a book that had the S word in the title. Now, how do you appropriately cover the book? We well, can't even appropriately cover this topic because we're we restrained by the FCC. There, there, was, there was a Broadway play that Chris Rock starred in that had an F word in the title, and, and I believe that it was basically deleted the same way to be cute about it. Everybody knew what the word was, but they deleted the mm -hmm. word. The fella in the hat. Well, we dealt with this this very week because the losing candidate in the Springfield mayoral election said... You know, I raised a lot of important SH something something, and um, it is easier to bleep that than to air it. But I, I believe there was an argument to be made if it came down to it that that had news judgment. Much like I believe it was after the Mueller report came out, President Trump came out and said this was BS, and we aired it live, and that is definitely justifiably newsworthy enough to give us cover. It's just much easier not to run the risk of saying those words. Yeah. Okay. By the way, this is the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. I'm Rex Smith. That was Ian Pickus here with Judy Patrick and Ira Fessfeld. Speaking of things that the law does and doesn't allow, the notion of revealing a source is in contention at this point because in federal court in Washington, D.C., a CBS News correspondent named Catherine Herridge happens to be an old friend of mine who was for a while a reporter for Fox News. And during and that still time, a friend of yours? It, well, this is uh, <laughs> yeah, it's awkward. It's complicated. But has she seen the error of her way? Yeah, she's now joined CBS as a senior investigative correspondent. But while she was at Fox, she did some reporting, noting that a scientist was under investigation by the FBI. Yan Ping Chen was the name of the scientist. And Chen is now suing the FBI and has alleged that federal authorities improperly leaked information to Catherine Herridge when she was at Fox News. Now, in order for Chen to pursue her case against CBS News, she wants to find out who was the source. I mean, that's kind of fundamental to the case against the FBI. And the reporter is saying, I can't tell you that. That is contrary to the appropriate stance. Journalists don't reveal their sources. Now, understand, if this were a state court in New York, the journalists would be protected because we have a shield law in this state. But you do have to have a little sympathy, don't you, for Dr. Chen, who might say, well, my reputation was impugned by the FBI, I think. So this journalist has to tell me who did it or not. Do you feel comfortable with this? You can see, I mean, Floyd Abrams is in this story, the eminent First Amendment attorney. And yeah, it's all about precedent. It might be separate from this question in particular, because we can't have journalists being compelled to turn over their sources when the story gets a little hairy. We just can't. And the reason we can't is because once that happens, people will be far less likely to become anonymous sources for the reporters down the road. And oftentimes, the most important sensitive information comes to us under the protection of anonymity. People are afraid what will happen to them if they reveal information that people want to keep secret. So our ability to protect our sources is paramount. Even the Justice, the, the Biden Justice Department has backed off on efforts to force reporters, to compel reporters to reveal their sources. There's a memo on file that says, you know, if there's terrorism involved, if there's immediate public harm involved, if there's no other way to get the information, there has to be a really strong, compelling reason, and it can't just be a civil lawsuit. 
agreeing with all of that. I think that we would all acknowledge, however, that using anonymous sources has hurt our credibility and the trust that the public has in the media in general, that pe people just don't believe us and they believe we're making up these, these unknown sources. And so I agree with everything you said about protecting sources, but it's got to be a tool that is using unknown sources to be used very infrequently and when there's no other choice but to do it because it's not doing you any good if people are not going to believe what you're writing or broadcasting. But that, the yeah, most that, famous use of an unnamed source, of course, was Deep Throat during Watergate, and people did come around. I mean, we gained credibility through the work of Woodward and Bernstein, which was based upon an unnamed source. Now, that was because the stuff turned out to be true. It was also 50 years ago. Right. A lot of things have changed. I mean, some of the most important stories of our time we have learned about through anonymous sources. People who are engaged in wrongdoing, they like to cover up their tracks, and they do not want the public to know. We're not going to get any groundbreaking investigative journalism issued through press releases. You get it through digging. I agree, Ira, you need to have protections in place, but the standards that almost every news organization uses includes the fact that we don't use an anonymous source unless there's no other way to get the information and that the story is of paramount public concern. And we've seen in some high-profile cases, if the anonymous source is wrong or burns you, it's not worth the original scoop. And you, you, know, you only have to look at the coverage of the run-up to the Iraq war to see that writ large. If you don't know the source's motivation for giving the information, it leaves a lot of gray area. Exactly. Very good point. You know, this is one of the reasons why reporters turn to documenting sources, that is to paper trails as opposed to human sources, which is always the safer way to go if you're a journalist. But that we are often foiled. It's <laughs> <Pardon laughs> an <the pun. laughs> inside joke. Yeah, inside are joke. Get. Speaking of foil, uh, what a great segue. This is actually a huge issue because the Freedom of Information Law, uh, as it's called in New York State, the Freedom Information Act in the federal level is what gives us the right to have access to public documents. But public officials try to evade that responsibility all the time. Case in point, right now, the New York Daily News is trying to get 179 interview memos from State Attorney General Tish James. Those memos were prepared during the sexual harassment probe in 2021 that ended up toppling Andrew Cuomo from the governorship. And Tish James is saying, no, you can't have this stuff. And the Daily News is saying, why not? Because these memos would explain what was behind the case, how solid it was, perhaps why it was that the governor decided to resign rather than fight and try to win what would have been a sure impeachment. This is, however, why we have the FOIL law to get this stuff, but politicians do their best to avoid it anyway. Another legacy of Watergate, but you know what? The irony here, because the Cuomo administration perfected the art of not turning over documents under Freedom of Information Act requests. They were the best ever at that. So now to have Tish James' office apparently doing the same thing to the Daily News is, is the height of irony. And also ironic is the fact that the Attorney General in New York State could be a strong advocate for the release of public information and for the public's right to know. You know, I've said this before, New York State's freedom of information law is largely useless. You can wait for years for information and never get it. There's no teeth. There's no enforcement. The only recourse most reporters, any member of the public has, is to go to court and spend thousands and thousands of dollars on the chance that you might be able to get the information 
far after the moment when you actually need it to write a story. So we need to take a much harder look at the existing law in New York State, what its weaknesses are, and fix them if we really care about the public's right to know how our government operates. There ought to be a statute that requires the digital availability of documents. It's technologically possible at this point for government to voluntarily put everything available online, of course. Ian is smiling here. It's not going to happen, right? (laughs) You know, put the budget online. Put your payroll Mm -hmm. online. There are a thousand things they could put online, and they have the capacity to do it. And and the technology is simple enough now where they can. But instead, we will have to write a letter and and to ask for something as simple as a budget or a proposed budget or uh, the rationale for a particular contract. It is outrageous at this point that there is so much hidden, and it's gotten worse in the last 20 years rather than better. Speaking you mentioned 20 years. I mean, I've been, I'm getting deja vu all over again. I just I can't believe how many years I've been thinking and talking and writing about this subject, and it's still pretty much where we were all those many years ago. Well, here's another one, Ira. Cameras in the courtroom. Yeah. You know, think about that. That was an issue 40 years ago. It so, remains. Yeah, and there was no cameras when Trump testified the other day. So for all we heard, he made quite a circus out of it, and there were no cameras in the courtroom. So had there been cameras... Would it have been even worse? This is in particular case in point with the federal trial upcoming on the January 6th charges in an effort to subvert the election. That would be a moment I can't imagine something of greater public interest than the potential trial of a former president on subversion. And there are no cameras allowed in federal court. More the Supreme Court. There's a consortium of news organizations urging U.S. District Court judge to make an exception to the rule barring cameras in the courts. I just had a conversation last week with local district judge Mae D'Agostino, who said she could not imagine the circumstance under which she would feel that she had the authority to grant that kind of a request. Wow. So the question is, would a district judge in D.C. feel any differently about that? It's still hard for me to fathom the rationale for keeping the cameras out of the court. I heard it again, oh, we don't want to make our court proceedings a circus. Well, it sounds like some of this Trump civil trial was a circus anyway. It didn't need (laughs) cameras in there to facilitate that. I think the public has a right to see how our system of justice functions, especially at a time when you have the former president assailing the system of justice as, as rigged and rigged. Well, let us see. And But as we know, that probably will not happen. That'll have to be the last word. That's Judy Patrick. By the way, folks, next week's show will feature a guest, which we don't usually have, Anna Wolf, who is from Mississippi Today, a not-for-profit newsroom down in Mississippi, who has won a Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting for a remarkable investigation of the misuse of federal welfare funds that implicated the governor and the celebrity quarterback, Brett Favre. And Wolf, by the way, is going to be appearing Tuesday, November 14th at 6 p.m. at the Linda, the WMC Performing Arts Center, where she's going to be receiving the Nellie Bly Award. And after it was decided that she would get that, she won the Pulitzer Prize. So she will join us on this show at this time next week. But between now and then, Tuesday, November 14th, you can join us at the Linda, 6 p.m. Tuesday for that. That's all we got time for. Judy Patrick and Ira Fussfeld, Ian Pickus, and I'm Rex Smith. Thanks to our producer, David Gustina, and to all you folks for joining us this week once again on The Media Project. It's wonderful to represent the show. The Media Project is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. 
This week's projectors include former Times Union editor and current Substack columnist of the Upstate American, Rex Smith, Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association, Ira Fussfell, publisher emeritus of the Daily Freeman, and WAMC News Director Ian Pickus. You can listen to The Media Project anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm your producer, David Gustina. Thanks for listening. Get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>